Hey, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today, we're talking to Terry Jackson, the executive director of the Women's National Basketball Players Association. That's the union that represents professional women basketball players in the WNBA. Basketball is personal for Terry. Her husband, Jaron Jackson Sr., played in the NBA for 13 seasons. And their son, Jaron Jackson Jr., is in his second season as a power forward for the Memphis Grizzlies. Terry is known for her slam dunks when it comes to negotiating contracts for the female players. But recently, she's had a switch from offense to defense as the league deals with the financial fallout from the coronavirus shutdowns. She's here to tell us how she's managing her players union amid this very difficult time in sports and how to stay on your negotiation game in this tough environment. Terry, welcome to Secrets. Hi, Veronica. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was a tremendous um, introduction. And and just thank you for inviting me to to this podcast and to the conversation because the ability to to talk about my work and talk about the players and, and highlight them and spotlight them is is what it's all about. So so thank you. Oh, it's our pleasure. We're thrilled to have you. Terry, you're a lawyer by training. So how did you go from getting your law degree to becoming the executive director of the Women's National Basketball Players Association? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Let's see. So the short version of that story is um, while I was a young associate practicing for a firm um, in New Orleans, we had free research time and I was researching Title IX and I was learning more about the regs and learning about the cases. I would pull every article that I could. And before you knew it, I had a folder and then a box and a couple of boxes worth of research that my husband would say, what are you going to do with all that? And and I said, I don't know, maybe one day I'll teach a class. And I guess I had said that too many times. And he said, well, can you do it already? <laughs> um, and so I put this class together. I had the opportunity to teach it at Tulane. I called my class Women in Sport. And that's really how it all kind of started for me. So I go from being litigator to being this professor teaching this class that she loved. Um, I was at a Mystics game and somebody said to me, hey, did you hear that the University of the District of Columbia is looking for legal counsel for the athletic department? And I'm like, what does that even mean? So I looked it up and I applied for the job. I got it. Um, During the interview, they told me, oh, there are some some NCA things that they wanted me to look into. What they didn't tell me um, until I got the job was they were under a full-blown NCAA investigation. Um, So I'm taking my path from teaching in theory, Title IX and NCAA regs and all of that, what it means to be a woman at the professional level to now I am thrown into the middle of a a huge NCAA case. And um, at some point, my duties wrap up at at the university. I move on to look for opportunities at the NCAA. I move my family from Maryland to Indianapolis, where the NCAA is headquartered. Um, and I start off there with working with the Committee on Infractions, and before you know it, I end up working for the best boss in the building, um, who's the chief legal officer, doing governance and policy work. And then I get an email 
from somebody who says, I think you're going to want to look at this. And I was in the middle of an NCAA convention. Like we had so much going on. I loved my job. I loved my boss. I was like, I don't have time for this. The person pinged me back two or three weeks later and said, hey, did you look at that email? And I finally opened it up and there was an, an, the announcement for this job. And I said, wow, this is everything that I have been working for and thinking about the opportunity to advocate for women on this professional level, to have the opportunity again to be in this role and to be on the side of the players was like a dream come true. That's a great story. I love it. Uh, so tell us, what exactly does your job entail? Well, my job is a little bit of everything, as you can imagine. Um, first, I would start off by saying that I report to the player leadership. I report to the board of player representatives and the executive committee. Um, they are my bosses, and I take that very seriously. I look to lead serve in my role as executive director. It's a lot of labor negotiations. It's monitoring the collective bargaining agreement, ensuring that we've got great communication with our player representatives on each team, that they help us understand what their living experience, what their working conditions are like, so that if we need to, we can hold the teams and, and the league accountable to what we negotiated. It is also developing or, or getting off the ground our group licensing and marketing um, program. We have had our group licensing rights for many, many years, weren't really in a position to, to leverage those rights and secure deals, licensing deals with different companies. Um, we now have trading cards out there again and bobbleheads and posters. And we've got product out there in the marketplace with the name and, and likeness and image of our players really for the first time. Time. We're really maximizing on that. And the, the revenue comes back and it helps operate the union. And we also create an additional revenue stream for the players. So this job is a little bit of everything. It's a lot of, of governance. There's some policy work. There's a lot of communication work and responding to media requests. And really, the focal point is really all about the working conditions and making sure that our players are positioned in the best way and, and they are well protected as they go out and do the job that they love. Terry, because of coronavirus, you recently had to do some fresh negotiation on behalf of the players. I want to talk about that in a minute. But first, let's talk about the major negotiation you did on their behalf this past January. Would you take us back to that time what was at stake and what conditions were the players trying to improve? We went into those negotiations really pretty focused. And what we said was if we're opting out, which means that that gives us a chance to um, kind of stop the clock and, and stop the, the current um, collective bargaining agreement. It was to expire in 2021, but we had an opportunity to say, you know what, we want out right now. We want to negotiate a whole new deal. Um, never never has this union um, elected the opt-out um, opportunity before. This was a first time. We had to make sure players understood the CBA, they understood what it would mean, um, and they understood what we were working towards. Would you just explain for our listeners what a CBA is in case they're not familiar? 
CBA, Collective Bargaining Agreement. This is the contract between the players as, as employees and their employers, the, the teams and the leagues. This is what um, defines their working conditions, how they live and travel when they're playing basketball for their teams, um, what their appearances, what you know, what the expect, expectations are there. Um, it's their salary. It's their benefits. It's the whole kind of compensation package. Um, it's also matters about player conduct and the drug policy. Um, all of that is found in this behemoth of a of a document, 300 and some odd pages, really written by lawyers for lawyers. But uh, <laughs> but we we emphasize the need for our players to to read it um, and to and to learn it and know it as best they can because they're professionals now, and that's what this is about. I'll go out there on a limb and say we had the buy-in of every single player. They understood that this was an opportunity um, to reshape, remake their league. I say it all the time. These women are so protective of the opportunity to play professional basketball at this level in the United States. You know, for men and, and boys, it's it's almost like an entitlement. It's, it's a given. Um, for us, it's it's not a given. And, and so we protect it and hold it so near and, and dear. And so we, we looked at this as saying, all right, if, if we could kind of do it all over, if we could press the pause button, where would we like to see change? And as we were talking with the players across each of the teams, Teams, we were noticing that it was falling into like two or three categories. They were talking about how they traveled, what their housing accommodations were like. And so we put that in the player experience column or bucket. They talked about their salary and their compensation and their benefits. So we had a player salary and compensation bucket. And they also talked about health and safety issues. And so we went into the negotiation saying, we've got priorities across all three of these buckets. And if we can make change in one or two parts of this in each of the buckets, if we can move some priorities uh, forward, advance them, then we'll be successful. And I will tell you, we had probably about 75 initial proposals. That's not even the counter back and forth that would go on over the months, just initially what we were putting forward. And I had folks on my team who had been at the table before. This was my first negotiations. And so they kept saying to me, yes, but what are the priorities? What are the priorities? And I said, are you kidding? Do you hear the players? Everything's a priority. We got to move and push on all of these pieces. And so that's how we went into the negotiations with that framework, with that strategy, because we were saying, what can make this league better? How could we reshape it? We started our first set of proposals. We started talking about what we thought we had in common with the league, where we thought we had the common ground. If you can identify what you have in common, then you kind of propel yourself and you give yourself that momentum to work through what might be the harder pieces that maybe you still have in common, but there may be a little bit harder to accomplish. I want to talk a little bit more about the collaborative approach you took in a second, but just want to talk a little bit more about timing. I think a key part of negotiation is not only knowing what to ask for, but also when to ask for it. So how did you know the timing was right to ask for more? I think it helped that we were in a developing movement in this country that was about supporting women. It was kind of 
coming off the the groundswell of support that was happening around the Time's Up movement. It was looking at women in the workplace um, a a lot more holistically and talking about the ways in which they could advance, the, the supports that they needed to advance, the issues that employers needed to identify that were critical, that were unique to what it means to be a woman. And that's what was happening in the world. That's what the members, the the players were just so tuned into. You were negotiating with the WNBA commissioner, Kathy Engelbert, for this deal. What was your relationship with her? My conversation with Kathy Engelbert, former CEO of Deloitte, started just before she formally accepted the role. She and I met at our offices in, in New York. We had a great conversation. We were finishing each other's sentences. I was sharing with her how we looked at the CBA in terms of those three pillars or three buckets, if you will. She shared with me her background and her interest in sports. And, you know, instantly I recognized she was the one for the role and that the league would be good to have her. And when she left the office, I went and called the executive committee and I said, if they choose her, and I think they will, I think this will be good. I think we'll have good negotiations. And and I'll tell you, I guess Kathy probably knows this now too. We, we did a little research on Deloitte and um, we particularly researched their family-friendly and women-supporting policies to understand the type of leader she would be in our conversations about the same kinds of policies and supports that we were looking for. You were talking about how you wanted to lay the common ground in the negotiation first and move from that place of strength and then add on other things that you were asking for. I'm wondering what inspired you to take this collaborative approach, you know, instead of doing a hostile negotiation. It's just not my style. It's just not my style to go in nasty, to go in hostile. You can be aggressive and still take the approach that we took. And I think we were very aggressive. I mean, to talk about a common ground and and to still say we put forward 75 proposals initially and to say that we had no priorities, we had no one, two, threes that, that we just had to get. We had to move on all fronts, you know, showed the type of vigor that we were coming to these negotiations with. When I first started in this role, there was two questions that I had, one for the players and one for the league. The one for the players was, why do they play in the WNBA? I soon learned it's because they love the game, period, the end. They believe very much in professional opportunities for girls to aspire to, and they protect this league. They're all in. So, okay, I had my answer to that. The question that I had for the league was, do they really want to have a league? Because if the answer was no, then opting out, game over, right? If we opt out of the collective bargaining agreement, no need to wait to 2021. There's no need to really negotiate. You know, we can just wrap this up. Maybe the financials are what they are and and the league will is not what it is. But that's not the way they came to us. They came to us saying, we actually want to give you a proposal first. We hear you. We understand. We want to, we're working on something. We think you're going to like it. And so they were answering the question, do you really want to have the league? They do. And so it made sense to me to say, well, let's show them together how to do this. Would you take us through the major highlights of what you got for the women in terms of the deal? 
The major highlights. There's so many. This is not in any order. I think this is just how I'm thinking of them right now. When I think about the players who are moms, this was a significant area for me. And it's not just because I'm a mom. It's because I wondered how many players we had lost because they didn't return to the WNBA, how much talent we had lost, the pioneers or the trailblazers that we had lost because they were moms in an off season and did not see what we have now. They, the child care stipend, a monthly child care stipend for players was not available years ago. And the ability for the player moms to have a second bedroom in the team housing. And so just as a bit of background, in the WNBA, the teams provide apartments, um, housing for the players if they select to, to live in the team housing during the season. And a player came to me very early on. She was returning back to her team, little one in tow. She needed a second bedroom. The, the team housing is a furnished one-bedroom apartment. She needed a second bedroom for her little one to sleep. And to get that second bedroom, it was considered an extra benefit and prohibited under the CBA. And it was one of those moments that, you know, we were sitting at the negotiating table, a lot more women at these negotiations than probably ever before. And I said, we have to recognize that a second bedroom for our player moms is not a benefit or a luxury. It is a need. It is an expectation. It gives her peace and and protects her health and safety because she gets a good night's rest. So does her little one. And we have a happy family. And that's what this is all about. So it's not about a competitive advantage or an extra benefit that one team could provide it or another team couldn't. We just needed it standard across the board. So those things come to mind. To have our salaries be negotiated where, you know, the minimum is now, you know, 57000 The highest uh, paid player is now looking to make, uh, in terms of her salary, $215,000. Those were big advances, and we're really pretty proud of that. The other part of this is is around marketing and the league and the team's commitment to recognize that they needed marketing strategies, marketing plans, and marketing activations around players in the offseason. That was important to us too that's about that's not just about additional dollars in in a player's pocket because you know she's still working that's about the league showing that it has a plan um, for sustainability terry we're going to take a quick break but when we come back let's talk about the impact the coronavirus has had on the wnba and your advice on the art of negotiation So like most sports in the United States, women's professional basketball has been postponed this spring because of the coronavirus, and that's forced some really difficult decisions for the WNBA. So Terry, the WNBA and the Players Union recently had to cut some players from the rosters. Tell us about that. First of all, let me say this. The league and the the teams look to honor our request that they honor their contractual commitments to the players. Those contractual commitments um, meant that players would start getting paid. Their first pay period would be on or about June 1. We all recognized really pretty quickly that 
without a training camp, the ability for the teams to get their rosters down to 12 was going to be very, very difficult. Um, they had to make some really, really tough decisions. You know, we, we salute them for, for again, forging ahead. We're, we're looking to try to get a, a 2020 season underway. And so they had to manage their rosters as best they could and made some really difficult decisions. The June 1 pay period should start more or less on time. You know, I what I had been saying to the players since the league announced and they were going to hold a virtual draft. I said, you know, you know what? You are working from home just like we are working from home. You have an obligation to come into, you know, the start of the season whenever that might be in good condition. So so stay in shape as best you can. Be safe, you know, work out and and run or get some shots up as as best you can. And also, you know, let's let's keep the momentum of this of this great CBA looking forward to a great 2020 season. Let's keep that going. I think these players have probably been more engaged in this offseason. They've been more excited about promoting the teams and promoting the leagues, taking their role as as spokesperson, taking that very seriously, probably this year more than any other year. And as you and I and, and many of those who are listening, as we are working from home and, and continuing to get paid more or less, I advocated very strongly that the league and the teams recognize that these are professional athletes and this is what working from home looks like for them. And it's important, you know, the messages that we had around supporting women and, and being fair in the workplace. It's important that you continue to demonstrate that. And, and they understood that. And so that's how we got to those difficult decisions around cuts without a training camp and looking f- to still have some discussions and plan around what a 2020 season could look like because the players are excited to get it going. A lot of people have had the experience of negotiating for themselves, but you're doing that for other women and for a whole group. Have the group's priorities changed since the pandemic hit and have yours? I have an order to my priorities and the highest order is player health and safety. We can talk about players want to play all, all day and all night, but at the end of that I say, but they want to be safe and I need to know what safe looks like. And right now I'm concerned not just with the infection of, of the coronavirus, but I'm concerned also with conditioning and, and perhaps lack of conditioning and injuries. And so, yes, so in in that sense, yes, I, th- I think that's what has changed. Um, that is my, my highest order. Um, I believe that the league will understand its responsibilities and, and continue to meet its contractual obligations with the players. And I'm, I'm not going to say that's not a top priority, but I, I it, it's it's a, at least a close second to, to the health and safety. I need to know that they're going to be safe before I can advocate for them to, to, to you know, think about resuming to play. I, I need to know what that will look like. And I know that they need to know what that will look like, too. Have your expectations had to be adjusted because of the economy that we're in, the environment that we're in? I think there are folks who are just getting around to to reading our CBA and and recognizing that we do not have what's known as a force majeure provision. Um, Some of the other um, professional sports leagues have a force majeure provision. And essentially, this is is a really shorthand way of, of describing what that is. But a force majeure provision in a contract would recognize that under certain situations, certain crises, a pandemic, an epidemic, perhaps 
war, a declaration of war, um, that it would, in, in those situations, that a party would be relieved of its contractual obligations. In the sports world, in, in our collective bargaining agreements, in, in, um, in that environment, typically a force majeure provision, right, would be put in by the employer, by the league. Um, again, we don't have that provision. We don't have that kind of language in our collective bargaining agreement that would otherwise relieve the league and, and the teams of honoring their contractual commitments to the players. But we do recognize that there are circumstances right now that are are making it tough in terms of, you know, public health, in terms of the economy that are impacting the whole world, that are impacting the business of sports. We are we are not excluded from that. We came into negotiations very, with a very reasonable attitude and, and approach. Um, we weren't looking to break the bank, if you will. We were very mindful of what the financial situation was and also what it could be, what the potential could be. We'll continue with with that same approach, mindful of what the financial situation is, um, what the current impact is on, on the industry, but recognizing that these are players who are going to be at some risk, um, recognizing that they are the product, they, they produce the product um, on the floor, and that they must be valued in what will be an upcoming season. And on that note, how do you make sure whatever new arrangement you agree to isn't going to reverse some of those gains you already achieved? Yeah, no way. Um, <laughs> that's 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 just not happening. I mean, you know what? Whatever we negotiate um, for the twenty twenty season is going to be for the for the twenty twenty season. Kind of period. The end. Um, you know, th- this is. A, a different year. It's not one that any of us um, had anticipated. I recognize that what we thought this league was going to look like four months ago is is different from four weeks ago, is different from four days ago, and and probably you know four minutes ago because things have just been changing so much. But but that's the nature of where we are right now. That's the nature of the 2020 season. Um, I I fully expect we'll be you know really kind of back on our feet and moving in with with truly more normalcy um, next year. You've gotten so many gains for the players. What would you still like to get for the players? Wow. Um, Higher salaries, of course. I better say that, number one, right? Higher salaries um, next time. And I'd like to see that the league is really, you know, on track and, and well positioned financially because there's a little known provision in the CBA. It's not talked about at all. The provision is about ownership. Typically, the WNBA, WNBPA, CBAs in the past have said that no player shall have an ownership interest in the team or the leagues. And the way we tweak that sentence or tweak that provision was to include some additional language. And that was to provide for the opportunity that when the league and the team's are doing well financially, that both sides, both parties, the Players Association and the league would come to the table and determine whether or not there'd be an opportunity to create an ESOP kind of arrangement where the players would have an ownership interest, like an employee stock option plan, kind of like what the Southwest unionized employees have, that equity stake, that interest in the airline. We're hoping that one day, we know we know it's not now, we know we know it's not today, but we're hoping that one day the league can move to a position where we can have those discussions 
and the possibility, the door for ownership interest for professional players who happen to be women, for them to have that opportunity to have that stake in their league would be tremendous. So I'm hopeful for that one. Thank you so much for joining us, Terry. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Veronica. I, again, appreciate um, the time that you spent with me and, uh, you know, let me know if we could ever circle back again. I would look forward to that. If you'd like to hear more stories of inspiring women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. Our producer is Trine Nori. Our executive producer is Kateri Yoakum. Additional help from personal finance editor Bray Lamb. I'm Veronica Dagger. Hang in there, Secrets listeners. You've got this. Thanks for listening. <laughs>